the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the show on this Wednesday afternoon. I hear it's beautiful outside. Um, I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And this is the Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions, questions about stuff going on in your life, anything and everything. All you have to do is provide the phone call. You can dial 210-340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR, numerically at 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com where you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app and if you're driving in your car remember the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app just hit the call now banner at the top of the screen everything else is hands free and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer hey I need your prayers I got like the dullest Bible study in the world to do tonight. I'm going to try to get through three chapters. I don't know if I can make it, uh, but it's First uh, Kings chapters 5 through 7. I'm going to just go as far as I can, and it's a lot of reading, and it's a lot of detail about building uh, the temple of God. Um, it gets really good next week if I can get that far tonight. Uh, but but this is just one of those Bible studies that you sort of have to muscle through. Um, and I just you know, God's word never returns void. So I'm hoping that somebody uh, will, will um, God will speak to their hearts. So I would appreciate your prayers. Let me go right away to our questions while we await any phone calls. This is from our email inbox anonymously. Hello, Pastor Ron. Uh, when in a marriage should someone get counseling? I have been praying for my marriage and trying to talk to my husband about the things that I've been struggling with without it coming to an argument, but we don't seem to get far. I know Jesus is the only one that can open our eyes, but when should we consider getting help from leadership? Sincerely, Anonymous. Anonymous, the the moment you should start is right now. You should start seeking counseling. That's what the church is for. You know, uh, we humans, we are so filled with pride. And I'm not talking about you specifically. This isn't personal. But but we're afraid that we're going to reveal too much to people. But remember, the hospital is a place where you, or the, the, the church is a place where sick people go to get well, like a hospital. And if a marriage is sick, if it's struggling, then that's what your pastors are for. So you should get counseling right now. Don't go another day. Uh, sit down with your husband and let him know that you're really struggling over this and uh, you want his blessing to go to the church leadership and ask for direction and you would like him to cooperate by coming with you and uh, and then pray that he'll be okay with that. Um, a couple of things about about the short paragraph that you sent in to us. Um, No matter what people say, 
And that means I'm going to say something pretty radical. But husbands and wives should not argue. You're one flesh. You're not two. You're one flesh. That's God's ideal. And I think any remedy for a sick marriage has to begin with understanding that. You know, if you argue with yourself, it makes no sense. If you argue with your husband or a husband with his wife, then then you're simply in a place where God can't bless you. He can't speak to you. And you're unable uh, to be helped because of that sin. So now that doesn't mean we don't disagree about things. But we just shouldn't argue. We have a Bible, the Word of God that's been given to us that will solve the problems. Now, in the meantime, Anonymous, let me say this. Uh, If I were your pastor, I would sit down with both of you and tell you immediately you need to be in the Word together. And usually when a situation is as the one you've described, I can tell immediately that the husband and wife haven't been in the Word together, nor have they been praying together. And what what I would want you to do is give the Holy Spirit a chance to change your hearts, to be less defensive. And usually that's where arguments come. You say you're struggling with something. The husband says, well, you don't understand me. You don't do this and I don't do that. And, and there's nothing resolved that way. And this is an issue that needs to be resolved because you want your marriage to be honoring to the Lord. And, you know, because... The Bible says that we're husbands and wives are joint heirs of the grace of God together. That means there's no daily grace for both of you if you're unable to hear from the Lord. So this is something that needs to be resolved. It's not something you just wait on or talk about or just hope against hope that it's going to get resolved. This needs to be something that you get to work on immediately. So go to your pastor's. Tell him what's going on. Don't hold anything back. Be honest. And let him show you the way out. You know, I'm pretty direct after 26 and a half years of marriage counseling. Doing marriage counseling is the single most difficult thing, the most painful thing that that pastors have to do. Nobody comes in for marriage counseling because everything's going great. And usually they start in on one another, and it's painful. At times they'll describe the house from different perspectives, and it will appear as though they don't even live together. That's how different the stories are. So what I've done is ask people right at the beginning, look, before you tell me the problems, I want you to know that things can get fixed right away. I can get them fixed today. But it's only going to get fixed if you agree to obey God. Are you going to do that? And I ask them that because if they say, well, I don't know, then I'm, I'm, not, I'm going to be able to tell them, look, I, there's no point in wasting time until you're ready to be obedient. Now, it's clear, Anonymous, that your heart really wants to fix this because you want your marriage to honor the Lord. But until that marriage is in the place it needs to be, Till each of you individually are in the place you need to be, then your prayers aren't getting answered. The Lord's not able to lead you or guide you. This is sort of your primary objective at this point. You've got to get right and stay right with the Lord. And the marriage is the single most important human relationship to God. The relationship that is the closest picture of what Jesus wants in relationship with each and every one of us. That has to be fixed. And all you got to do is follow Jesus, both of you, and it will get fixed. So thank you for listening to the program, and I will be praying for you. We have got Ron from Converse on line one. Ron, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hello, Pastor Paul. Pastor Ron, I am so sorry. Good to, good to hear from you, sir. That's okay, Ron. You're the one guy that shouldn't mess up my name. Yeah, I, uh, I should be, but <laughs> you know, I just exemplified my imperfections. <laughs> I do it all the time, all the time. Oh, Kelly. Um, I have um, a question from Psalms. Let me pull it up real quick here. I just needed your... Um, 
your understanding. Can you hear me okay right now? I can hear you fine. I can hear you well. Okay, it is Psalms 91.8. Only thine eyes shall behold and see the reward of the wicked. Will we? This is Psalms 91.8. Will we? Mm-hmm. I know that all tears will be wiped away. There's going to be a, you even, we talked about this, it's a reset. I think you call it a deletion of our minds and our hearts and our, that will be rebuilt and redefined according to our Father and His mm-hmm. Son will, will be reordered. But Psalms 91, 8, only thine eyes shall behold and see the reward of the wicked. Does that mean that we will see um, what I think we'll see um, in relation to their, will we see their um, judgment? And I'm going to, I'll leave this up to you, Pastor Ron, to, to help me to help me understand this. Okay, Ron, thank you very much for the call. I appreciate it. A couple of things. Uh, we, we need not to confuse heaven and and um, our focus on Jesus, where there'll be no tears and no sadness, with the judgment. We're going to see the judgment. We're going to be used by God uh, to execute righteous and judgment during the millennial reign. So this would be a picture of, of uh, the, the judgment of the Lord. Uh, Revelation chapter 19, Ron, when we come back with him, and he destroys his enemies um, on his robe, um, um, king of kings and lord of lords, stained with the blood of his enemies, and we're going to be there. So, yes, we're going to see that very moment. We will also see at the end of the, the, the millennial reign the great white throne judgment. And the great white throne judgment is when people are going to be cast into the lake of fire, and we will be there and we will see it. Now, this is going to sound a little bit strange, Ron, but but during the time, it's like in the book of Revelation when the judgments are being poured out and the, the witness from heaven, the martyrs of the, of the great tribulation are going to be crying out, true and faithful and just are your judgments, O God. Uh, we're going to celebrate the righteousness of God, the justice of God at that time. At that moment, Paul talks about where every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of the Father. That means every tongue, those who are being judged and those of us who have been spared from judgment. But yeah, we're going to see it and the judgment won't come by near us as the psalmist here declares. Uh, This is a judgment of righteousness at the end of time, um, which... We'll understand, again, it's hard. Judgment is a strange work to God, and he hates judgment. Isaiah 28 says that. Um, And right now, none of us want to think about judgment. But a time is coming when the righteous judge of all the earth will stand enthroned. And we will celebrate this justice. And like the angels in heaven, we will be crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. So, Ron, that's what's happening. This isn't this isn't a reference to when we go to heaven, then we're going to um, uh, see the things that are going on on earth, the judgment here. That's not going to be the case. It's not till we come back with Jesus and we will rule and reign with him for a thousand years. So I hope that makes sense to you, Ron. I know a lot of people are so sensitive about that. But no, heaven is going to be completely... Uh, devoid of of any pain, any sorrow, any tears. Um, And then, of course, after the thousand-year reign of Christ on earth, that will be the eternal state forever and ever. Thank you, Ron, for the question. I appreciate it very, very much. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Terrell or Terrell, whichever the right way to pronounce it is. Um... Pastor Ron, what's the best way to deal with prejudice and bigotry in the church? Um, Terrell, you know, um, uh, this is something that we as believers shouldn't even have to discuss. We shouldn't even have to discuss. Uh, We who have been given a new heart, Jesus' heart, we simply cannot display or demonstrate any prejudice of any kind, period. We need to understand that God sees two groups of people in the world, saved and unsaved, and that's his only concern. So I think, Terrell, what we've got to do is 
deal with people who are prejudiced, people who demonstrate uh, that they are racist or bigots in any fashion or form, we've got to deal with them very directly. This is a teaching opportunity. You know, when we get saved, all of our old habits don't just go away. Uh, We don't get saved, give our heart to Jesus, and while positionally we're perfect, um, you know, we're the same person, same thought process, uh, same past experiences. And so all of those old things just don't go away. But during the sanctification process, it's the process of being made more like Jesus every day. Then as we seek him, our hearts become like his heart. And we begin to view people not in the worldly way that we used to, but in a spiritual way as a supernatural gift. And we start looking at people from God's perspective. And we need to be very, very diligent about this because we're misrepresenting our king if in fact we're holding on to prejudice that we had before we were Christ. Second Corinthians 5.17 uh, says the old is gone and the new is come if we're in Christ. And that means all of the old junk goes away. All of that to say that this isn't something that we should even have to think about. One of the things that's happened in our world, Daryl, is that um, everything now is focused on, centered on race. Um, since Obama's presidency, uh, race relations in this nation have gone um, so far backwards, it's incalculable. The damage is, is, is irreversible. Uh, everything is about race. And that's one of the reasons the church has to be different. Now, you might imagine, Terrell, I've been married to a beautiful black woman for our 50th anniversary is this year, and we've been together for 52 years. Uh, I've dealt with a whole bunch of prejudice and bigotry. But the way that we counter it is we don't have any expectations of people when somebody demonstrates racism of any sort, uh, we just share Jesus with them. I've told people that I I know they think they're Christians. I've told them, look, if you were really saved, you wouldn't be able to think like that. Well, I'm saved. What do you mean? And that, that gives me an opportunity to teach them. But the best way to deal with prejudice and bigotry is to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and then look at people through his eyes. That's the gift God has given us. And every human being on this planet is precious to God. Jesus died for the sins of the whole world. And that means we've got to accept people the same way he does. And I think we need to be aggressive about that. I think we need to be forceful. We find people who are uh, racist or prejudiced. Um, And I think our job as a church is to demonstrate to this world that there is a difference in the way that we can deal with this difference is is simply to, to be with Jesus and he'll let you know how much he loves the people and he'll expect you on his behalf to love them as well. So I hope that makes sense, Terrell. And um, if you have a more specific question, I'd be happy to 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 deal with it. Just send it back. Here's a question for Kelly. It's about Paula, and I'm probably going to let her answer this question tomorrow if she feels like she wants to. Uh, Kelly says, what role does Paula play in leadership at your church? Um, Paula would tell you probably that she's not in leadership. Now, she has a, a ladies' leadership group, typically the pastors and elders' wives here at Calvary Chapel, and she meets with them. Um, but Paula would say that she, she, you know, they gave, we gave her a key. We, we gave her a key. And, and when she comes in, um, you know, it's not Pastor Paula. It's not anything like that. Um, you know, I think the, the way I would say it is that Paula's role in leadership is setting an example for other men and women in the church. And she does that with her faithfulness. But in terms of being given a title, she's not the first lady. She's not um, um, Pastor Paula, as I said. She's she's just Paula who loves Jesus. And uh, the example she sets in loving Jesus uh, kind of sets her apart 
as a leader, but, but sort of a leader without a title. So I hope that makes sense to you, Kelly. And if Paula wants to deal with that a little bit uh, more in depth tomorrow, I'll give her the opportunity to do that. Good question. Here is a question from Greg. Why are so many people online deconstructing their faith? What does that mean exactly? Greg, um, you know, nobody ever takes my counsel when I, when I say this. Stay offline. Stay offline. We're influenced. Bad character corrupts good company. So stay offline. Now, I'll tell you what deconstructing their faith has come to mean. It's come to mean that people reject the Jesus of the Bible. They reject the Jesus they were raised with, especially in our culture, in the evangelical church. Um, They go out and they look for a different way to approach God. They don't uh, stop believing in God. They're just trying to change who he is. Instead of being created in his image, we try to recreate him in our own image so that he's more acceptable. And you'll find a lot of so-called progressive Christians who aren't really Christians at all. You'll find them. No, I went through a, a, a faith deconstruction. And, and, and the simplest way to explain it, deconstructing your faith allows people to make peace with God when they don't want to stop sinning. So they just change Jesus. Oh, Jesus doesn't mind this. Jesus understands this. And they can continue to sin And that's why they've deconstructed their faith, because they don't want the faith of their parents or the faith they were taught in church, because ours is a Jesus who judges sin. And so they'd rather just believe that it's not sin at all. These are people, Greg, who have denied the faith. They've tried to change Jesus into someone who will let them be or do whatever they want to be or do. And... What they've been left with is a faith that isn't faith at all. So um, the question, why are they doing it, is because we all want to sin, Greg. I want to sin. But having a Jesus that never changes keeps me in a safe place. I know I can't change him, so I have to make a decision. Do I want to be with him or do I want to be away from him? And, um, uh, of course, as a real Christian, we want to be with the Lord. That means we've got to change our behavior. That's why John writes that if we confess our sins, that means to agree with God about sin. And people deconstructing their faith are coming um, up with a, a faith that doesn't even recognize sin nor the need to repent. So God is who he is. We can't change him. And anybody who won't accept that is guilty, Greg, of deconstructing their faith. And once again, I want to say they end up with no faith at all. So hope that makes sense. Jonathan has written in and he says, would you please explain 1 John 2.19? I'm going to get there. John says they went out from us. But they did not really belong to us, for if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. And then by contrast in verse 20, but you. And those contrasts are always critical. So here's, I think, uh, what John is telling us. Now, John uh, and Peter both were, were, you you can tell from their writings, they were both um, devastated by Judas's departure. They thought Judas was the real thing. In fact, because he was the treasurer, the, the the man with the money bag, they probably looked at Judas as the most responsible of all of them. And when Judas betrayed Jesus, they didn't see it coming. And it really changed them. And John, of course, would have to wrestle with this problem of people who started out appearing to be a part of the church and then ended up walking away from the church. And that's been a problem from the very beginning. And so here's John's explanation. He's saying, look, those Christians who we thought were part of us, they left us because they didn't really belong to us. Now, in our culture, we would say, oh, they weren't really saved. I was talking about progressive Christians who aren't really Christians at all. Um, You know, these people deconstructing their faith, these people who are trying to change Jesus into their image, uh, they never really belonged to the Lord. Now, they may have made uh, statements that they were saved. 
uh, progressive Christians will say, oh, I'm saved. I know Jesus. I know Christians who are actively uh, homosexual who, who say, no, I'm a, I'm a Christian. I believe I'm as saved as anybody. Um, I had a, a, a child of a friend who is transitioning say that, that I'm as close to Jesus as I ever was, but, but they're really not. So they go out from us because they never really belonged to us, John says. And then he explains it, for if they belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But by leaving, by their going, they showed that none of them belonged to us. I think um, this explains a whole bunch of people that we thought were saved. And um, Jonathan, we, 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 we maybe even served with him like Judas uh, served perhaps with Peter and with John. Um, but we were fooled. It really wasn't true at all. So I think this is simply John's explanation of the whole Judas episode, and it certainly explains a bunch of people that we thought were saved. Maybe they started well, but then they really never surrendered their heart to the Lord. Thank you for the question. We've got 30 minutes left in our program today, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. We'll be back in two minutes. Back to the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the program, 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. I was told that I didn't say anything about the date day edition tomorrow, so just file this away. As most of you know, tomorrow Paula will be live in studio with me at 4 o'clock, so ladies, especially for you, it's an opportunity for you to share your heart uh, with her, the greatest encourager in the history of the world, and uh, we'd love to have your calls. Let's go to Cindy on line one. Cindy, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor Ron. Hi, Cindy. You know what? Every time you say that you're in a part of the scripture that's going to be kind of boring, I, I don't know, I must be a whack job, because I always find it really fascinating. <laughs> Bless your heart. <laughs> <laughs> well, I do. Last week was really interesting. So so anyways, I was in um, Matthew 25, and it's about the parable of the ten virgins. I'm going to kind of paraphrase down to where I'm getting the, to where my point is. It's the ten virgins, and, and they want to get oil for their jars, and then there's other ladies that don't get oil for their jars, and then the bridegroom, you know, is going to come, and, and they need to use their oil, and the other ladies don't have any oil, and they don't want to, you know, they, they can't get any oil. Now, now it's where, where it's getting to. Is is let me get here. I had it a minute ago, but it got away. And okay, here. Well, I'll start in verse ten and go down to uh, twelve. But while they were on their way to buy oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. That's part of the part part of it. Later, the others also came. Sir, sir, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, I tell you the truth, I don't know you. Now, the part where I think that would cause um, cause people confusion is that after the rapture, nobody can get saved because it kind of, that's what it sort of sounds like, although I know that's not true because he's going to have 144,000 witnessing to everybody and lots of people are going to get saved. But I just wanted you to kind of clear that little bit of scripture up because I think there are some people, you know, possibly who, um, who, who would be befuddled by it. So anyways, I'm going to put my radio back, I'll take it off of mute and listen to your answer. Bye. Thank you. Thank you, Cindy. Um, one of the things that we have to do, and, and I started teaching on parables uh, this past Sunday uh, in Mark chapter 4. And one of the things that I uh, I said that, that is helpful in interpreting parables is that, that most people err because they try to read too much into one parable. 
Every parable has one and only one major point. And what we try to do is we try to extrapolate uh, a whole bunch of other doctrinal issues. And and that's not what Jesus is doing here. Now, there's certainly some application here as it relates to the rapture of the church and the, and the, 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 the command for Christians to be ready to occupy until he comes. But, but that's not the main point of the parable. The main point of the parable is simply this. We need to be ready when it's time for the wedding supper of the Lamb. Now, one of the things that we forget and struggle with in, in Jesus' teaching is that we forget how Jewish they are. Jewish, Jesus' ministry was completely Jewish. The teachings, the illustrations were completely Jewish. And the application was Jewish at the time Jesus interpreted. And in this particular case, Cindy, it was a picture of a Jewish wedding. And the way the Jewish weddings went is uh, there would be a, a betrothal, and, and that would normally last one year. Um, the, legally, the bride and bridegroom were married for all practical purposes. The only thing they couldn't do was enjoy one another physically. They still lived apart, um, and they would have to wait until uh, the wedding was consummated. And the wedding was always given sort of the green light by the father, of the groom, not the bride, the father of the groom. So here's what would happen. The father in that year of of being betrothed, the, the father would uh, help his son prepare. They would uh, go out. The, the father would provide materials. The son would build a house uh, to get ready for his bride. The father would go expect the the the, the house. And, and just as a matter of course, they would almost always reject the house. So it's not already, you need to do this, you need to do this. And the idea is he's teaching his son that everything has to be perfect for his bride. And so one of these times, and this is the wedding party as we encounter it in Matthew 25, um, the, the son um, would would uh, be summoned by his father. They would take one more look at the at the, the, the house, and the father would declare it ready. And he would probably say something like, now, son, go get your bride. And the, the, the wedding party that this parable focuses on, the wedding party would get the news. There's going to be a wedding. There's going to be a wedding. Usually it would be in the middle of the night, and there's going to be a wedding, and everybody would get ready. And so uh, in this particular case, uh, when the go-ahead was given, uh, at midnight, the cry rang out. This goes back to verse 6. And he hears the bridegroom come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish one said to the wise, give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. Now, what that means simply is that half of them were ready for this call to the wedding. Half of them were not. So we have to interpret these things properly. What Jesus is saying to us is that the five foolish virgins didn't have enough of what was necessary to be ready for the bridegroom to come. They were sleepy. They got a little bit lazy. Maybe they got a little bit tired of waiting. Maybe, like Christians today, they thought, well, he didn't come yesterday. He's probably not going to come today. And so they didn't do their diligence. And so if you look at this, the, the only difference between the, the two groups of virgins um, is, that, um, is in the oil. The wise group had enough oil. The others did not. Everything else about them is identical. Now, without the oil, the five virgins couldn't even enter the wedding feast. That's the most important fact in the story. No oil, no light, no light, no wedding party. It's that simple. So that's what we need to understand about this. And so what they did, they tried to rely on other people. And, the, and the, the, the wise virgin said, no, there's not enough. If I give you some of mine, there's not enough. And they told him to go buy some oil and buy some for yourselves. Now, this is not uh, any indication we can go buy the power of the Holy Spirit. Oil talks about, um, um, is a picture of the Holy Spirit. And, and, you know, we can't do that. So this isn't about buying um, the only Holy Spirit. But the point is in verse 10, while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. They were too late. 
And that's what they missed out on. Now, let me finish this, Cindy, by thinking about this. Now, this is not the meaning of the parable, but this is the application of the parable for those of us who live in these last days. So think about this as it relates to the rapture of the church. Imagine what it will be like. People who had knowledge of the truth, they knew there was going to be a wedding banquet, but without ever surrendering their will to the, to, to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, when the time comes and the rest of us are taken to heaven to be with Jesus, they're going to find out that they were too late. They're too late. And that's why when it says, and the door was shut, um, once the rapture of the church happens, it's over. Now, as you indicated, Cindy, there are going to be people that are going to be saved during the Great Tribulation, but they're going to have to go through horrible, horrible things. We're actually in that place in our study right now in the book of Revelation on Friday nights. We'll be in chapter 15 this week. So uh, there will be many who come to a genuine faith in Jesus Christ, but they'll have to go through the terror of the Great Tribulation unnecessarily, and all because they weren't ready. So they didn't believe when we're told to be ready. Look up, for your redemption draws nigh. The Christian or the professing Christian that says, well, you know, I don't believe he's coming. I can live the way I've always lived. Um, Our Bible says if we live in sin, we won't inherit the kingdom of God. All of that to say, if you're a Christian in 2022, you can't depend on your father's religion or your mother's prayers. You can't depend on being a member of a church whether it's a Catholic church, a Baptist church, or even come to Calvary Chapel. You can't depend on your infant baptism or confirmation. You have to develop your own personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ, or the door will be shut. And there is absolutely no answer other than to be ready. So that's what that's all about, Cindy, the parable of the virgins. It is about readiness in the church of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Cindy. Always enjoy your questions. Leo has a question. I know God is good, but how can I explain why he killed infants and children in the promised land? Leo, I I get this question a lot um, in the Canaan campaign uh, of seven years. um, And even before that, um, when, when God instructed Moses and his armies to wipe out every living thing, Um, The answer has always sort of been the same. Look for God's mercy. You say, you know, God is good, but there can't be any but on God is good. So let me explain why he killed infants and children in the promised land. God was very, very slow, very patient in pronouncing judgment. For the Amorites, for example, he waited for more than 400 years until their sin was full. So what God knows from heaven that we don't know is that they've come to a place where their sin quotient is completely full and there's no answers. They're not going to respond. God knows that. And so it's time to be judged. And remember, judgment always comes. So um, judgment came, the judgment was just, and it was good. Now you say, well, but how can infants and children be judged, I want you to think again through the lens of mercy. The women and children who died in the Canaan campaign, having been killed before the age of accountability, before they turned out like their parents, means that they would be in heaven with Jesus forever. They would instantly go to their reward. In the Old Testament, in in paradise, the place in Luke chapter 16 called Abraham's bosom, And yeah, their life here would end. Sinful life, rebellion has consequences. However, those who were killed young were not accountable for their sins, and they'll go to heaven. So that's God's mercy. That's God's love being manifest. So I hope that makes sense to you. Thank you very, very much. Let's go to Steve in Cedar Park on line one. Steve, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor Ron. Um, enjoying uh, getting back, going along in Revelation um, with you on Friday nights on your uh, website. And uh, it kind of brings me, maybe not a real serious question, but as Jesus was, was born and as a young, you know, as soon as he was on earth, he knew he was God. My question is, since you finished 13 and 14, 
does the Antichrist know at a young age who he is and what his mission is, or is it as life goes on, uh, Satan takes over this human? Uh, and that's my question. Just does he yeah. know his mission? And um, I'll listen offline, but thank you so much. Thank you, Steve. I appreciate it very, very much. Um, you know, the, the answer to the question is, I'm like, like Jesus. You know, people will say, well, when did Jesus know? Well, we don't know. We knew at 12 he had to be about his father's business. The Antichrist, remember, the devil uh, will empower him later in his ministry um, when, when he sort of rises to prominence. Um, but but remember that God has always got sort of reins on the work that the devil does. So I think what makes the most sense, and, and we have to kind of lean on that because we don't know, um, uh, the Bible doesn't tell us specifically the answer to your question. Uh, I think the Antichrist will shoot to prominence out of nowhere, um, meaning he doesn't know who he is or what his calling is. Now, he may be a young man, and I, I believe he's alive now because I think we're that close to the return of the Lord. But but he might be a young man who isn't interested in the things of God. He might be uh, somebody who is, uh, um, you know, um, if, if he would, for example, be old enough to be into the occult or things, he could be somebody who's dabbling around with the power of darkness right now. Um, God knows who he's going to be. Uh, Satan, I don't think, yet knows who he's going to be. But but Satan certainly will be looking for this man because Satan knows the scriptures. So I think he will come to prominence very rapidly. Uh, I think he will have a background that that uh, won't, won't at all um, um, make it appear like he would be somebody that was prominent. Um, and, and I think from the beginning of his public ascendancy, uh, into the the public eye, I think uh, he will be empowered by the devil from that point on until we get to the place where the devil actually inhabits him uh, in the middle of the great tribulation, uh, when he demands that Jews worship him uh, in defiling the the holy of holies, uh, the abomination that causes desolation. So, Steve, that's a guess because we're not told, but that seems to me to be what makes the most sense. Thank you very, very much. Here is an anonymous question from our email inbox. Hello, Pastor. Good day to you and love to you and Paula. Thank you. Is it wrong that I don't want to attend family functions on my wife's side of the family because they're Jehovah's Witnesses? I just feel uncomfortable and feel like we have nothing in common. Or am I just being selfish? Anonymous, I wouldn't say that you're being selfish, but here's what I would say. That love is sacrifice. And, um, you know, I certainly wouldn't um, watch what I said. I would still talk to them about Jesus. I would still share with them uh, the gospel of our Lord. Um, I would talk to them um, um, nicely uh, about their errors. And as long as they're willing to listen, I would keep talking. And then, uh, in fairness to your wife, she loves her family. Um, when there were family functions on her side, I would go and I would be so filled with joy. I would let them know how much I love their daughter. I would let them see the hope that you have. The attitude that says, you know what? This is an opportunity to witness to people that are going to hell. And I would take that opportunity and thank God for it. So as uncomfortable as that might be, uh, and certainly you're right, you have nothing in common with them. But you see, Jesus would tell you they're the object of your ministry. Let your light so shine before men that they see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. And so just get over yourself and go because it's an opportunity to serve the Lord. And if they don't want to hear, remember, just make sure it's obvious how much you love their daughter. Make sure it's obvious how much you love Jesus. And let his name come rolling off your lips over and over and over. And then as you pray for them, perhaps the Holy Spirit will use your joy. Because Jehovah's Witnesses don't have any. May the Lord use your joy to start convincing them that something is missing in their life. So I hope that makes sense to you. Thank you very, very much for the question. 
Here is a question from Krista. Uh, I have a niece named Krista. I haven't seen her for many, many years. Um, Pastor Ron, what are your thoughts on Mark Driscoll and his ministry? I'm not a fan, Krista. Um, Mark has um, a past um, of documented abuse of people in his church. Uh, his teaching borders on being false. Um, uh, there's enough of the truth there that that he can sound authoritative. He is evidently a very charismatic guy in terms of the way he presents himself on stage. Uh, but um, he, he's left a trail of really, really hurting people uh, from Seattle to now in Phoenix. Um, um, I just There's just nothing about his ministry or his teaching that I could recommend at all. I had a question yesterday about listening to people um, or maybe it was Monday, listening to people uh, or reading their commentaries when they'd fallen away. I think there comes a point when you see the pattern of a guy's life to the point where you just think, okay, he doesn't have anything of value to offer to me. And so I would I would advise uh, about avoiding his ministry altogether. Pray for him, but I would advise you to avoid his ministry altogether. Hope that makes sense. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Here is a question from Jenna. She says, "I believe in Jesus, but still have lots of doubts. Does that mean there's something wrong with me?" Um, Jenna, no. What you have to do is remember that the the doubts have an evil source. That's the enemy. From the very beginning, in the Garden of Eden with Eve, he asked the same question: Did God really say? That's doubt. And the more we entertain those doubts and the more those doubts um, cause us anxiety, the more he's going to keep bringing those doubts. So every time you have doubts, you've got to make a decision. Okay, I have chosen to follow Jesus. I've chosen to follow Jesus. And so I'm simply not going to doubt. Now, that doesn't mean that the doubts are going to stop because Satan is going to keep bringing them. But but get to the bottom of the doubts. Make a decision once and for all that you believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God, God the Son, that he died for the sins of the world, he died for your sins, and then believe. Now, how do we know? Because he's alive. They killed him, and he's alive. And that's verifiable human history, overwhelming evidence. And if the tomb was empty then Jesus is who he said he was. And the doubts are something you're going to have to fight over and over until the enemy tries something new. So, Jenna, I hope that makes sense. Let's go to Glenn on line one. Glenn from San Antonio, thanks for calling. Yes, thank you, Pastor Brian. I I wanted to ask you about the hospice program. And uh, we just recently had some family member that had passed, and they had hospice. And then I just have, in a Bible study this morning, uh, the uh, hospice program came up and some individuals that actually had participated in being a hospice worker made a comment that you, you, you there's some, I guess, uh, uh, oh, what's the word I'm looking for here? Uh, not principles, but things you don't do. You don't, as a hospice worker, you don't, uh, you know, uh, give your testimony or profess your faith and things like, uh, you know, Seems to me like that'd be a perfect opportunity, you know, to to, to test, give your testimony and to talk about the yeah. work, you know, right there yeah, where they're Glenn, in a bad situation. Yeah, Glenn, that's you. You you make sense of that because you love Jesus, and and the people that are dying, they're the ones who need to hear. Now, um, let me sort of recalibrate this. I'm a big fan of hospice minister ministries and nurses. Uh, they do a wonderful job. We've had so many people that they have they they've been life changing for, um, but they got to be Christians. I, I would never have somebody um, who was dying who didn't know Jesus uh, be ministered to by anybody who wasn't a believer. I mean, you're right. The one time that you want to tell everybody about Jesus is when they don't have much time left, and there's no time to mess around. You can't delay because you never know from one day to the next. 
So um, in general, hospice is a wonderful ministry, and the nurses that I've run into uh, who, who've been in hospice, of course, most of those have been believers, um, they, they have been just an absolute treasure. On the other hand, um, we, we need to, to, to be sure that they've got the right message on their lips, uh, and, and that message needs to be consistent. It needs to be complete. Not only that, but they are the ones that have the best opportunity to minister to the families of those people who are are uh, about to die. And, um, you know, at a time like death, Jesus is the only thing that matters. And so if people get angry. I would not um, ever participate uh, if I was a nurse, a Christian nurse, and somebody said, you want to be in hospice ministry? Only if I could tell them about Jesus. And we've had opportunities, you know, here, Glenn, over the years when we've had hurricanes and, and uh, people were replaced in, in San Antonio from, from places like New Orleans and stuff. Um, we went down with a whole team of people ready to tell them about Jesus. They said, no, you can't talk about Jesus. So we left. There's just no point in being involved in it. So, yes. Hospice ministry in general is a wonderful thing, and they are heroic in the functions they perform. However, uh, the only thing that matters is their position in Christ uh, in their last days. And so many that we have had personal experience with have surrendered their hearts to Jesus Christ on their deathbed, and, and that's real, valuable hospice care right there. Glenn, thank you very, very much. And your sense of discernment is working well. So tell your friends that uh, we need a Christian hospice ministry. We have that here at Calvary Chapel, by the way. We've got a lot of people who are engaged in hospice ministry as a profession. Hey, thanks for listening today. Thank you for tuning in. Remember, Paula will be live in studio with us tomorrow on the date day edition of the show. May God bless you and keep you. Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow. See you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The word to stand on for life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.